Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. My husband, Fred, and I have two boys named Eric and Brian, and for the most part, they have always gotten along really well. That said, growing up, Eric, like I think a lot of big brothers, just occasionally liked to pick on Brian, partly because he could, partly because I think when he got bored, he just found it entertaining, and partly because even to this day, he's never forgiven Brian for dethroning him as the only child in the family. Brian, uh, two years younger than Eric, is our more laid-back, patient child, and uh, he happened to just adore his older brother when they were little. He would put up with Eric's antics for quite some time, for days on end, even longer at times, but when Brian was done, he was done. One of the first times we noticed this was they were only about two and four years old, and we were just gathering around the dinner table. I think Fred had stepped away for a phone call, and I was still getting things on the the table when Eric started screaming. And I turn around, and Brian is just sitting there, just calmly staring at his brother, and Eric is screaming, he stabbed me, he stabbed me. I note the fork in Brian's hand, And But I look at Eric, and I don't see any damage until I get close, and then I see four blood dots forming in his eyebrow. Another time, Fred and I were in the kitchen, and Eric came running in there, Brian right behind him, fist raised, and Eric made the tactical error of running into a room where there was no way out, and as soon as Brian caught up with him, he just began to wail. On Eric. In those particular moments, I have to be, I have, I'm grateful that Eric seemed to know that he deserved what he was getting and he would never defend himself because, uh, one, the reason I'm grateful is he was way bigger than Brian at that time. And so he could have, he could have done damage, but he didn't. So we have worked with Brian, we had to work with Brian on how to handle big emotions, and we had to work with Eric on what his part was in the mix of everything. Well, they're now 24 and 26, and you'll be very glad to know that Brian no longer stabs people with forks, which is a really good thing since he works in the emergency department at Providence, and he is often around people's big emotions. As far as Eric, he has come to appreciate deeply his brother's wisdom and his friendship through the years. Today in our series, what does that mean? We're not looking at just one word, but we're looking at a series or at a a phrase out of scripture. And that phrase is slow to anger as it relates to the character of God. Exodus 34, 6, a verse that both Hannah and John referred to in their sermons on compassion and loving kindness, where God describes his character to Moses, 
This phrase, today's phrase, is also included in that verse. So let's look at one more time what God has to say about himself in that verse. Right before uh, verse 6, it says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. If you've been here for all three of these sermons, you might be thinking, enough already. This is the third time we've heard this verse. But I want you to know, I think it's important that you know, we're not the only ones repeating it. This particular verse, Exodus 34, 6, is the most repeated verse in Scripture. It's quoted seven times in its entirety, and then phrases of it are repeated 20 more times throughout Scripture. It seems that God is making sure that those who seek to know who he is come to know that he is a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. Slow to anger, of course, doesn't mean that God never gets angry. And we're going to do some exploring of that today. But right here in this moment with this verse, don't miss this. Anger does not define who God is. Slow to anger, God himself says, that's what defines me. I am slow to anger. Unhealthy spirituality develops when we see God as primarily angry, or we see anger as the dominant characteristic of God. Personally, I grew up with an angry dad. Maybe you did too. In, in such a broken and pain-filled world, unfortunately, anger is not that uncommon, but it can be so damaging. In our family, we found out late in my dad's life that he endured some things in childhood that, while it didn't take away the damage that was done in our family, it certainly gave us an understanding and compassion about what he had experienced and how it had shaped him and formed him. As you probably already know, we develop our first sense of who God is through our parents. And ideally, the way that God created it to be, created it to be, is that we would learn about unconditional love, healthy correction, forgiveness, support, and joy. Yet out of their own brokenness, uh, parents, and I can say now, out of my own brokenness as a parent, we sometimes pass on broken images of God's character. For me, because uh, my, my dad's anger just seemed to boil right underneath the surface all the time, and we never knew when it would explode, and we might be grabbed by the arm and, and taken to task in ways that I won't go into, when I was a child, God terrified me. I saw God as angry, unpredictable, and far bigger and more intimidating and more powerful than even my earthly dad was. 
I was six years old when we, our family had attended uh, a revival service at church. In fact, I was six when my dad came to know Christ. And I, I think it was shortly thereafter we attended a revival service. And when we got home, I asked my mom if she thought I would go to heaven. And I can't remember all that she said. All I know is she said yes. And she was baffled by the fact that I just broke out sobbing. I wasn't worried about hell. I was worried about heaven. God has graciously and consistently fathered me out of that broken image. Being slow to anger, God says, is who I am. And I have certainly found that to be true. The Hebrew word translated in this verse as slow is Eric. It can be translated uh, a number of ways, but the primary ways this word is translated is long, patient, or slow. Slow to anger. In other words, God is not a God whose anger is just constantly boiling right underneath the this, this surface. Slow to anger means that God's anger takes a very long and slow pathway. The Hebrew word for the word anger is af and can be translated nostril, nose, face, or anger. I think primarily that's because anger typically, at least humanly speaking, shows up in the face, doesn't it? Uh, when somebody's really angry, not only is their face red and sometimes hot, their nose, their nostrils flare. And you usually want to kind of calm things down when you see that beginning to happen. God says, it's going to take me a really long time before you see that in me. When God was preparing to set the Israelites free from Egypt, he gave Pharaoh, who had enslaved his people for over 400 years, unjustly and cruelly, he goes in, so God's given him a long rope. He then, at, after that, gives him 10 opportunities, 10 chances to let the Israelites go before he says, okay, we're done, we're doing this, and this is how it's going to go. My husband, Fred, and I were driving down to Eugene a couple of weeks ago, and I said, Fred, what does it mean to you? We often talk sermons. If you don't know, my husband's actually an inter interim pastor at another church, and we talk sermons. And I said, Fred, what does it mean to you that God is slow to anger? And he stopped for, thought about it, and he said, to me, it means that God responds. He doesn't react thought, wow, I like that. He goes, yeah, I preached a sermon on it once. <laughs> and so it made me feel safer, even with the topic of anger, to realize that God doesn't react, but he responds. That there's going to be a very slow path to his anger. And when it does come, there will be ample warning, and there will be a planned response and not a lashing out in anger. In other words, God doesn't fly off the handle. Now, some of you listening to this message, you know the Bible really well, or at least you've read it all the way through, and you may be thinking of a few incidents that suggest otherwise, and I just don't want to ignore those this morning. Obviously, in a 33-minute sermon, we're not going to solve all your questions about anger, but let me just offer a couple of thoughts 
for your consideration. The Bible is a book that covers over 4,000 years of God relating to humanity in a book that we can carry around. That necessitated an economy of words, words chosen carefully and succinctly. There's incredible continuity of the message through the Bible, but we cannot pretend, and I don't want to pretend that it's without its complications. Because of the economy of words and the thousands of years covered, there are simply stories that we do not have full background on. That's what, that's what I just want you to think about a little bit. We have, we have enough information to grasp the big picture, to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have enough information to know that, that God chose to pay a debt that we could not pay. And there are these verses like Exodus 34, 6, repeated often enough that we get the big picture of God as, as loving and compassionate and patient, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. But that said, we have to grapple with the fact that our knowledge is partial. Because we wonder about the poor guy who reached out when the, and touched the, the Ark of the Covenant when it was tipping, and he died immediately because God had said, don't let anybody touch the Ark. And then we may think about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament who lied to the early church in the book of Acts, and they dropped dead immediately. Both of those seem extreme to us. Bob Simbola and Cherry Cox for uh, Adult Bible Fellowship last week taught about the holiness of God as something that we, that we have to take seriously in Scripture. And both of these stories have aspects of that. And we might just want to consider that we do not know these stories in their entirety, and God does. The violence in the book of Joshua raises questions for us. By the time, by this time in the Bible, over 1,500 years has passed between, from creation in Genesis to this moment when Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. So God has seen every single moment of humanity for a 1,500-year period, and we have the briefest overview of that time. A wise and respected pastor that I once worked with said he wonders at times if the Old Testament isn't more about man's misunderstanding God than understanding God. Did Joshua get everything right? I really don't know. The Bible was not meant to be an all-inclusive book of knowledge answering every one of our questions. It was meant to teach us of God and his love story with humanity, to show us and to help us choose between life and death as we live out this life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that in this life we see things imperfectly, and twice in that short passage he says that our knowledge is partial and incomplete that we will not fully understand who God is as he fully understands who we are right now. We're not going to fully understand God, Paul says, until eternity. 
These thoughts that I just offer for your consideration are not meant to erase questions, but just add a little bit to our thought bank. Well, despite the things that raise questions for us, the idea that God is slow to anger holds weightier proof throughout Scripture than the idea that God is an angry, unpredictable tyrant. God's description of himself to Moses affirmed, is affirmed by those all throughout Scripture who knew God best and walked closely with him. Nathan, uh, Nathan Meeker last week in, in our musings mentioned, talked a little bit about Jonah, and Nathan, my mind had gone exactly to that same place. And if you know that story, you know that Noah, or, uh, Jonah ran away from his assignment to go preach to the Ninevites, a very barbaric and cruel nation. He ran away because as he tells God angrily in Jonah chapter 4, after the Ninevites had repented and God forgave them and did not destroy them, Jonah says to God, I knew you were going to do this. It's why I ran away. I knew you were going to forgive them for I know you to be, look it up in Jonah 4, I know you to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jonah's not having uh, this happy, gushy worship experience with God. He states what he knows to be true about God, and right in this moment, he doesn't even like it. But he states what he knows. He affirms who God is, that he is slow to anger, merciful, and forgiving. As I said earlier, being slow to anger doesn't mean that God never gets angry. What I want to contend this morning and what I want to, to offer you is the fact that God's anger is an anger that we can trust. And that's an unusual uh, thing to consider. I shouldn't say it's an unusual thing to consider. It's an unusual thing because anger in humanity is so often untrustworthy. But I want you to, to consider that God's anger is one we can trust. First, we can trust that it is long in coming. We don't need to live in fear that, oh, my word, today's going to be the day I'm going to make that wrong move, and God is just going to get angry and be done with me. He's going to blow up and be finished. I have made plenty of wrong moves in my almost 60 years, and despite that, and despite my messed up paternal images of God, and despite my questions over some of the passages in Scripture my experience teaches me, even when God's anger is aroused, it is an anger that I can trust. His anger is just, fair, it is merciful, restrained and controlled, and it is redemptive, always working for our good. Let me share an important word from a respected New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. It's a little long, so we're going to put it up on the screen so that you can digest it both uh, verbally and audibly. N.T. Wright writes this, The normal objection to theories of atonement and redemption that focus on divine anger is that this seems to run contrary to the deepest themes of the New Testament. Now, of course, divine anger at human rebellion, and particularly at the rebellion of the chosen people, 
features prominently throughout Israel's scripture. Similar notes are struck in the New Testament, not least in the teaching of Jesus himself. And suggestion that sin does not make God angry needs to be treated with disdain. When God looks at sin, he, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to, were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. But here's the difference. In many expressions of pagan religion, the humans have to try to pacify the angry deity. But that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures. The biblical promises of redemption have to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. When King David, if you remember the story, if you don't, I invite you to, to look it up. It's in 2 Samuel. When, when David abuses his power and takes Bathsheba, another man's wife, and then has that man, that warrior husband, loyal to king and country, killed in order to cover up what he had done. I'm going to ask you today, would you really have wanted God to look the other way? No, and God didn't. God uh, sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to tell David, a story. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and Hannah is going to read that passage for us. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 10. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is the word of the Lord. God responded. He didn't react to what David did. He responded justly. He addressed David's sin. He held him accountable. I think that's what we would want. He responded mercifully. He, he spared David's life, and he spared his kingdom reign. And God responded with redemption. After the death, if you read the whole story, after the death of the child that was conceived on that sin-filled night, God followed up by giving Bathsheba and David another son, Solomon, who ended up being one of the wisest kings and the wisest men 
to ever live and was a good king for Israel. And eventually, Solomon was just a foretaste because through the line of David, talk about a redemption story, came the very Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's interesting and perhaps telling of us all that David in this passage, when Nathan tells him this story, he is so angry. I think the word actually says he was furious over what he thought was someone else's bad behavior. Furious that a rich man who had a lot of sheep had taken another man's one and only little beloved lamb. He's so angry. But when Nathan said to him, you are the man, David, in true David fashion, he received that word. He accepted the word against him. And he confessed it willingly and sincerely that he had sinned against God. And Nathan shared with him that God would forgive him. He would spare his life. But there would always be consequences in David's family. If you've read the context, and we did read a little bit of it a couple of weeks ago, that Exodus 34, 6, you know that this very verse that talks about God's compassion and love and being slow to anger is actually said in a moment of judgment. It happens right after the Israelites had worshipped, built and worshipped the golden calf. Verse 7 needs to be read with verse 6. Let me share it with you. God's continuing to talk to Moses, and he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children into the third and fourth generation. Man, you read that and you go, hold the phone. What? That doesn't seem fair at all. And if you know scripture, you also know that in other places, God says, I won't do that. Every parent and every child will be responsible for their own sins. So what's, what's going on here? What does this mean? In all the study that I've done and the reading of scripture it simply means that God lets the choices and lifestyles of parents take its natural course, affecting generations to come. David's son Absalom would lay with David's wives, and he would use the sword. He would spend the rest of his life using the sword against David. In religious terminology, we call it generational sin. Counselors today call it generational dysfunction. One generation's lifestyle and choices affecting the family going forward. We have a God who is compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. And our choices and our lifestyles will always have consequences. It is God's mercy and desire that those generational sins be interrupted, that they stop and they can be. They can stop. Anyone who turns to God in a dysfunctional or sinful uh, lineup of, of family members, anyone who turns to God will find mercy and forgiveness and redemption. Things 
can change. If you're listening to this today and you come from that kind of a, a family background, I got to tell you, read Jesus's family history. He has Manasseh, who was the worst king that ever lived in his family history. He has other kinds of skeletons in his family too. So don't feel like things can never change for you. Let's bring this into this New Testament. Perhaps the greatest example where we recognize that Jesus is slow to anger is when he has been unjustly tried, beaten, and abused all through the night and then hung on a cross and still prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God's character on full display in the person of Jesus. One pastor writes, there are two kinds of people who are hard to help in pastoral counseling. One thinks he's gone too far to be forgiven. The other thinks forgiveness is a snap. One thinks he is utterly disqualified for the kingdom, and the other thinks he is a shoe-in. The one thinks that God is unbendingly wrathful, and the other thinks that God's a pushover. One is blind to the magnificence of God's mercy. The other is blind to the magnitude of his own misery. I'm going to ask you, where are you today in considering God's anger? Do you see anger as the primary character trait of God? God says otherwise. He says, I am slow to anger. And then he proves it again and again and again. Or do you see God as never angry? Sky Jathani, who's a New Testament scholar, and a few months ago, John interviewed him for us here at New Hope. He writes this, abandoning any commitment to divine wrath is not only unbiblical, it's immoral. Although advocates of that view say they're devoted to a God of love rather than judgment, they unknowingly construct a false God who is ultimately indifferent to the sufferings of people and the spread of evil. If we have truly recognized the magnitude of our misery, and I would say the misery our sin perpetrates onto other people, if we've acknowledged that, then we have truly come to a place of repentance. We have truly come to the cross. And when we do, when we come to the cross in repentance and recognition, there we find an advocate before God in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our debt is paid. The cross is not God's reaction. The cross is God's response to humanity, to our brokenness, to our sin. It is just. The debt has been paid. It is merciful. We don't get what we deserve. And it is redemptive. It changes us, liberates us, and gives us opportunity for a new life. If we say we have, on the other hand, come to the cross and yet we've never taken sin seriously or God's anger seriously, and we take sin lightly, either whether it's personal sin or collective sin, 
then that just kind of begs the question, have we really bowed our knee? Have we really bowed our heart at the cross of Christ? Paul asks this in Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does that mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? To know God is as both slow to anger and the God who calls us to account is healthy spirituality. God is slow to anger, and his anger is an anger we can trust. Would you pray with me? Our loving God, we, we thank you for describing yourself to us, just painting the picture of who you are as compassionate and loving and merciful and faithful and being slow to anger. God, in a crazy world that we live in and such confusing times theologically, would you just help us sort through kind of all of the uh, broken images we have of you and grapple with the beautiful truth that you are very slow to anger, you do hold us to account, and it is always in a just, merciful, and redemptive manner. We give you thanks for who you are. Keep teaching us. We want to learn. In Jesus' name. Amen.